Hey everyone, quick announcement. If you want to support this podcast, check out my website, useconpodcast.com. There you'll find a link to my Patreon as well as some other interesting things, like the list of books and resources I use in putting each show together. Some other ways you can support this project are by subscribing to the show, writing reviews, or sharing the podcast on social media. One last thing, make sure you follow at useconpodcast on Twitter. Alright, now for the history of US economics. On July 4, 1776, 13 British colonies declared themselves independent of British rule and founded a new country, the United States. The Founding Fathers were acutely aware of the risks they faced in declaring independence. The Continental Congress had few means of waging war, no means of taxing or paying for a war, little domestic industry to provide for an army, a virtual dependence on foreign trade, and that's not to mention a British garrison of 10,000 soldiers already present in the Ohio Territory, left over from the French and Indian War. Add to that that Congress had nothing more than a ragtag colonial militia and zero navy with which to defeat the largest empire on earth. We'll dive into the state of the U.S. economy during the Revolutionary War. We'll also dive into the desperate monetary measures that Congress took to pay for that war. The Revolution will also lay bare the damage that unrestrained fiat currency can have on an economy, though the Founding Fathers deem that damage as a fair bargain in exchange for national independence. Finally, we'll see how the question of repairing the economy after the war put the United States on the path towards a national bank the nation's first institution with direct control over the money supply, and by extension, the economy. When the war started, America had few domestic industries other than agriculture. This made the U.S. dependent on foreign countries for goods. In other words, international trade was a critical component of the United States' well-being. For example, the colonies depended on trade for goods like shoes, salt, gunpowder, and rifles. Realizing the colony's dependence on foreign goods, as soon as the hostilities began, the British launched a massive naval blockade against American ports in 1775. In response to the British blockade, Congress turned to chartering a Continental Navy in 1775, with hopes that it could capture British war goods en route to America. The Congress also issued over 1,500 letters of marquee to privateers, giving them license to plunder British vessels, hopefully bringing back the much-needed goods to the United States. Regarding the British blockade, John Adams once remarked that taking the British on at sea was akin to, quote, an infant taking on a mad bull by the horns, unquote. But if the mad bull of the British Navy wasn't enough, the colonists also needed to defend off pirates and privateers, which Her Majesty's Navy had been keeping at bay in colonial waters. The newly chartered Continental Navy and the colonial privateers were America's only hope at keeping much-needed war goods flowing into the country after the British blockade. America's forced economic isolation made the prospect of fighting a war seemingly impossible. But even more daunting was the question of how to pay for it. Congress did not have the power to tax. It was, after all, just a collection of state representatives. For the Congress to attempt to tax would likely be seen as an abuse of power. The last thing that Congress wanted to do now was strike the same chord that the English had when they had imposed the Stamp and Townsend Acts, which colonists just viewed as unjust taxation. With no means of collecting revenue, could the Congress issue war debt, maybe an issuance of war bonds perhaps? Also no. Debt holders expect to be repaid, with interest no less. But without a source of revenue, how could Congress find the money to repay any war bonds? Issuing debt and levying taxes were out of the question. Congress settled the issue of having no money, and no means of collecting any, in an intriguing manner. They simply invented a new currency. 
Not unlike Massachusetts' solution to the unpaid soldiers back in 1690 from the last episode, Congress issued Continental Paper with the promise that the notes would be redeemed for silver once the revenues materialized someday in the future. This conferred legitimacy on the currency, though it's doubtful Congress ever actually intended to redeem the notes. I say that because of the sheer volume of notes issued throughout the war. The money supply in 1775 was $12 million, but within five years it had risen to $225 million, that's a nominal value by the way. Due to this, as well as war-induced supply shortages, the price level of goods rose over 100% per year from 1775 to 1781. As we'll see over and over again, wars have a way of upending a national economy and its money supply. Government expenses skyrocket during wartime, and to cover the costs, governments usually turn to one of three things, issuing debt, increasing taxes, or printing money, or some combination of those three. But with debt and taxes out of the question, the only remaining option was to run the money press non-stop. Congress figured that wrecking the money supply was a necessary cost of winning the war for independence. The means by which Congress injected this currency into circulation was also cunning. They paid the soldiers in continental paper, and left the job of distributing the notes to them, the men with guns. Even so, merchants were loath to accept the paper, and Congress had to turn to issuing federal certificates, essentially just IOUs, which themselves began to circulate as currency. One step higher on the credibility ladder than the fiat continental paper, federal certificates totaled $600 million by the end of the war. If the flood of continental paper and the deluge of federal certificates wasn't enough to neuter the economy by way of inflation, individual states also took it upon themselves to issue another $210 million of their own entirely separate currencies. Clearly, the Revolutionary War era monetary system was a disaster. The continental paper would never be redeemed for silver. After all, how could Congress possibly tax the citizens enough to pay silver for the obscene quantity of paper now in circulation, especially since as of now, they had no power to tax in the first place? Unlike the federal government, some states did gradually redeem their notes, but at vastly depreciated rates. Virginia and Georgia, for example, redeemed their notes for silver at a ratio of a thousand to one. This situation launched a debate in the colonies, remnants of which still continue even today. Should the country have a loose fiat currency, or should the money supply be grounded by silver or gold? As I mentioned in episode 1, back in 1764, the British Parliament prohibited the use of paper currencies in the colonies. This had the positive effect of stabilizing prices by dampening the inflationary booms and busts that the colonists had grown accustomed to under rampant money printing. But state governments and local banks were disgruntled and considered Parliament's decision as an unfair meddling with their revenue source. You see, the nature of using physical metals, or using paper notes directly redeemable for physical metals, is that it locks in the money supply. After all, the quantity of money in circulation can only grow at a rate in line with the growth of gold and silver held on deposit at the banks. Though this makes the nation's currency vulnerable to changes in commodity prices, like what happened during the gold rush in the mid-19th century, it also has the effect of putting money printers on a leash. This builds a natural constraint on the money supply and hems in inflation because banks can't just print unlimited notes without the specie on deposit to back those notes. Bankers call the amount of notes in circulation compared to the amount of gold or silver in a bank's vaults a specie reserve ratio. For example, if a bank has $1 million of notes in circulation and $1 million worth of gold in the vault, that bank would have a specie reserve ratio of 1 to 1. More realistically though, banks would be around 5 to 1, or 10 to 1, and the sketchy banks would operate around a ratio of 20 to 1, meaning that the bank had issued $20 worth of paper notes for every $1 of gold or silver in the vault. The problem was when the specie reserve ratio got too low. 
It meant that the bank had overextended itself by printing too much, and it could easily run out of gold or silver if depositors came asking. We'll get into this more in future episodes, but this is what I mean about the people admonishing a bank if it issues too many notes compared to the amount of specie in the bank's vaults. You see, people in government don't want to use the notes of a bank whose specie reserve ratio gets too low. When a country is on a gold standard, the banks can't just print money willy-nilly because the banks must maintain some reasonable specie reserve ratio, or else their notes lose credibility. But if a country is on a fiat currency, meaning there's no gold or silver backing the paper notes in circulation, then that constraint doesn't exist. But what happens when a war chest needs to be filled, or some large government expense occurs? When the quantity of currency in circulation is tied to the physical presence of bullion in the nation's vaults, the money supply can't expand to provide the needed liquidity. We'll see time and time again during national calamities when the money supply needs to expand to fund a war or some other government expense, the leash of a metallic standard is quickly sacrificed in favor of a fiat currency. So it was during the Revolutionary War. Congress managed to inflate its way through the war by the printing of fiat currency and then later by injecting federal debt notes into the colonial economy. Unable to tax, though, Congress was hard-pressed by debt holders to find a way to settle that debt that didn't involve a default. One solution arose from the Congressional Superintendent of Finance named Robert Morris, who argued that Congress should charter a national bank to assume the debt, basically just moving that debt from the balance sheet of the federal government onto the balance sheet of a central bank. That bank, Morris argued, should also be the only bank in the country permitted to print currency and should serve as the depository for all congressional funds. And who should be in charge of this monopolistic, powerful national bank? Well, Robert Morris, of course. The debt accrued throughout the war provoked Congress to charter Morris's bank in 1782, and in that year, the Bank of North America opened its doors. The bank earned the financial backing of several wealthy Philadelphians, as well as $470,000 worth of specie, which Morris essentially embezzled out of Congress in order to meet the capital requirements of the charter. The bank leveraged its funding as the credibility needed to issue bonds. The proceeds from those bonds, the bank then used to buy the Congress's debt, gradually helping to dig the central government out of its hole. The bank also attempted to remedy the country's monetary fiasco. It was to hold gold and silver in its vaults, against which the bank printed a new national currency. But it didn't take long for Morris to run into trouble, because people outside of Philadelphia had little interest in using notes that could only be redeemed in that city. Otherwise, what value does a note redeemable in Philadelphia have to a blacksmith in Atlanta? Geographic distances caused the desirability and value of the national bank's currency to fluctuate, much to the chagrin of Robert Morris. The story of the Bank of North America embodies a transformational phase in the American psyche. Mercantilism, the ideology that dominated Europe for centuries before this point, preached that gold was the ultimate store of value. Adam Smith worked to dismantle mercantilism in 1776 with his book The Wealth of Nations, though many people still trusted gold above any other form of currency. This became a bone of contention once the Continental Congress began issuing fiat currency in 1775. Remember, fiat currency is just paper, it's not backed by gold or silver. But Americans in the 1780s weren't accustomed to just paper, they wanted gold, and they grew unsettled at the prospect of using tattered paper instead. In a compromise that satisfied both the people and the banks, paper currency had to be backed by gold held on deposit. This way, banks could issue paper while the people could rest assured knowing that gold and silver still backed their notes. Governments too weighed in, usually siding with the banks in favor of the seemingly endless revenue source which was paper notes. Fast forward to today and the transition away from gold is complete. 
Gold is no longer a legal tender, but rather just a commodity. No bank will redeem a dollar for its equivalent value in gold, and the dollars are unanimously fiat. The issue is thoroughly settled. But in the 1780s, banks still needed to back their currency by specie if they wanted people to see their notes with any semblance of value. It then fell on the banks to resist the urge to print more notes than they could back by the specie held on reserve. The Bank of North America proved unable to resist this temptation, which contributed greatly to its demise. The Bank of North America lasted just over one year. In 1783, Congress opted not to renew the bank's charter. Though the bank lived on as a private bank, remnants of which, by the way, were eventually acquired by Wells Fargo in 2008 under the name Wachovia. America's first attempt at a central bank ended with little done in the way of settling Congress's massive war debts, though to its credit, the Bank of North America did provide a source of liquidity to the cash-strapped government. Some critics, however, have noted that the introduction of the bank's notes had the effect of pushing specie out of circulation a la Gresham's Law, which damaged the money supply. Ultimately, though the Bank of North America set out to handle the monetary pandemonium which was Revolutionary War era economics, it failed to materially affect the course of U.S. economic history, which is why a lot of sources don't recognize Morris's Bank of North America as the country's first true attempt at a national bank. The bank was derailed after falling victim to the temptation that befell many banks at the time, the allure of printing money without the adequate amount of specie on deposit to back its notes. Morris also failed to foresee how much the value of his banknotes would deteriorate outside of Philadelphia. His vision, therefore, of a unified central bank was hopelessly doomed to fail, in part because he didn't dream big enough. Morris thought that from his throne in Philadelphia he could control the entire U.S. monetary system. In reality, though, no one outside of Philadelphia was interested in using his bank's notes. Congress wasn't impressed with Morris's bank and put an end to his plan a little over one year after writing it into existence. The significance of Morris's Bank of North America is that it marks the first time the federal government tried to have direct control over the country's economy through a national bank. We'll find this to be an ongoing theme throughout the podcast, that is, how extensively should the government be involved in the economy. The Bank of North America was the first of many experiments along this vein, and it represents an important dimension of U.S. economic history. At the time, Americans were unsure, as many are today, as to whether a central bank could effectively stabilize the nation's monetary system, or if a central bank was even necessary at all. Critics argued that a central bank was an elitist institution, which granted undue power to wealthy bankers at the expense of common people and the farmers. Opponents of the central bank argued that letting the economy operate in a truly free manner, with no government involvement whatsoever, was the most equitable way for an economy to operate. But on the other hand, the Federalists in government, like Robert Morris and his aide Alexander Hamilton, believed an institution that held sway over the economy was the best solution to the mountain of war debt and the volatile money supply. Upping the stakes of the debate, the U.S. economy was locked in a pernicious cycle. The public demanded that gold and silver back up the paper notes in circulation. In other words, if a note holder wanted gold, they could take their bill to the issuing bank and ask for it. And if the paper currency was to be credible, then the bank had to honor the note holders' wishes and give them gold when they demanded it. However, the fiat currency that had begun to circulate in the economy throughout the Revolutionary War wasn't redeemable for anything. The IOUs that the federal government had issued couldn't be taken to the treasury in exchange for gold. And to make matters worse, because of Gresham's law, every time the federal government issued fiat currency, the silver and gold in circulation would diminish. Remember, Gresham's Law says that when there are two competing currencies in one system, bad currencies will push the good currencies out of circulation. Just like what happened in Massachusetts in the 1690s from the last episode. When there was an increasingly worthless amount of IOUs in circulation, the gold and silver began to disappear. 
This created a mortal flaw in the U.S. economy because paper notes, fiat or not, were pouring into circulation throughout the Revolutionary War. But those paper notes, just by the nature of their existence, were pushing gold and silver out of circulation to be hoarded in people's homes or to be sent overseas if it managed to slip past the British blockade. How then were paper notes supposed to be backed by gold and silver when the gold and silver was constantly vanishing from circulation every time a new issuance of paper notes came around? You can see how unsustainable and frankly chaotic this system became. And it was largely this criticism that fired up the Federalists in Congress to defend the idea of a powerful central bank. The Federalists, like Morris and Hamilton, argued that a powerful central bank was needed to coordinate this monetary fiasco. The Federalists, whether they knew it or not, were onto something. If history is any guide and the prevalence of this system nowadays is any evidence, then a central bank with direct control over the money supply does appear to be a superior alternative to letting the money supply fluctuate wildly at the whims of thousands of uncoordinated participants. I say that of course with a giant asterisk, a central bank is only superior if it makes prudent monetary policies. When we get to the episode on the Great Depression, you'll see why. Anyway, most modern economists agree that the careful monitoring of a money supply is key to a healthy economy. They call this idea monetarism, and it's one of the philosophies that guide the Federal Reserve today. Monetarism argues that economies benefit from having a carefully controlled quantity of money in circulation, and the central bank should avoid high inflation at all costs. To combat inflation, and deflation for that matter, monetarists argue that the quantity of money should be allowed to grow at a target rate, generally accepted to be around 2-3% to per year. That growth in the money supply is called inflation, by the way, and inflationary targeting has become a central part of the Federal Reserve's monetary policy as of 2018. We'll get into this more when we get into the episodes on John Maynard Keynes and Milton Friedman, but real quick, one criticism of monetarism is that it doesn't permit the money supply to grow when shocks to the economy occur. I mentioned earlier that a criticism of the gold standard was that it doesn't allow the money supply to expand and contract to stimulate or slow down economic growth when needed. Monetarism gets that same criticism, because if the growth of the money supply is fixed at 2-3% per year, central bankers can't expand or contract monetary policy when the economy heats up or cools down. The argument between monetarists and Keynesians will get its time in the spotlight, I promise, but we have about 100 years of economic history to cover before we get there. For now, though the stimulating effects of an expanding money supply were probably opaque to the Founding Fathers, they did like to be able to print money when needed, and were thus conflicted because they also didn't want to experience the pernicious effects of inflation if they could help it. Use of a complete fiat currency had a poor track record in the US, but it was an easy source of revenue which pleased government officials and bankers. But use of a hard currency was popular with the people, who still possessed notions of mercantilism and wanted gold above paper. The Founding Fathers sacrificed the monetary system of the young United States in order to win the war. The boatloads of cash coming from the newly formed federal government threw the American economy into an inflationary tailspin. To this end, George Washington once remarked, quote, a wagon load of money can scarcely purchase a wagon load of provisions, unquote. Such is the risk of a fiat currency and the extreme inflation that it can introduce if it's not well managed. Add to this that the federal government also crafted IOUs that it unleashed into the economy as a currency. While the Congress didn't have the credibility to issue bonds as a means of raising cash, it did manage to get itself into tremendous debt by forcing the IOUs into circulation. Defeating the British was the first obstacle for Congress to overcome, but repairing the economy was the second. The Bank of North America was the nation's attempt at accomplishing that second goal. Congress hoped that it could transfer the debt and monetary responsibilities from its own shoulders onto those of a separate institution. 
Though the Bank of North America quickly failed, leaving the debt and inflation issue largely unresolved, it did mark the beginning of the federal government's experimentation in the space of national economics. The debate surrounding how extensively the federal government should be involved in the economy will prove an ongoing theme throughout this podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of the History of U.S. Economics Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out the website, useconpodcast.com. Also, follow the show on Twitter, at useconpodcast.